This is the School Success Podcast, a podcast for school leaders to learn from other school leaders what's working and what's not, and to get inspiration and encouragement, as well as strategies to grow school enrollment, connect with families, retain teachers, recruit teachers, and everything in between. You guys are heroes, and I cannot thank you enough for pouring into this next generation that's coming behind us. My goal is you will take at least one thing away from every episode that you can take back to your school to make it better than it is right now. Please enjoy the School Success Podcast. Hey, School Success Makers, welcome to another episode of the School Success Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Slater, joined by one of my friends that I finally got to meet in person in October, Keith Castello, who's located in the great state of Texas, and he's the founder and executive director of Kyrie Christian Education Services. He's got a great background in education, has led schools, does a lot of interim head of school work. And when I got to know him more in October, I was, again, I was like, man, I have to have this guy on because I know I can learn a lot from him and you guys as well can learn a lot from him as well. So, Keith, I'll pass it off to you to introduce yourself a little bit more, but welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks, Mitchell. Good to be with you. It's going to be. Yeah, so you've said that I spent my career in education. That's true. So, I start off college is an aerospace engineering major and ended up with an English literature degree. So that well-worn path is the one that I walked and I graduated with my bachelor's degree and immediately started seminary, two weeks later, in fact. And so it's been a number of years in seminary praying that God would call me into church ministry and really sensed, no, that is not what he had for me. And uh, it was at that time I got my first paying gig in a K through 12 Christian school environment. And I was captivated almost immediately. And so I've taught and coached and done various things administratively. I became a head of school at the young age of 31. And so I've had uh, 20 years plus of head of school experience now in the Christian school movement. And most of that has been in classical Christian schools. So that's an area that I know real well. And so I'm trying to finish a PhD right now in educational organizational leadership through Liberty University. And God willing, I can complete that by May of this next year. Fantastic. Well, my wife graduated from Liberty with her bachelor's, so I'm very familiar with that school. She loved it, so I'm sure you're going online since you live in Texas. So I know they have a huge, great yes. online program as well. So I always like to ask, you're in Texas, so if I was to ever visit you in Texas, where you are specifically, what would we do for fun? What are you like, Mitchell, you got to do this to really just enjoy the area that you live? Well, I'm a big museum person, so I like many of the museums. I think a lot of people know the Dallas museums better than they know the Fort Worth Museum. So I would take you over to the Fort Worth Cultural District and we'd go see the Eamon Carter Museum, which is probably the greatest museum on the planet for Western art is in Fort Worth. And so definitely would make a stop there because it's not what you see normally, a lot of other places, but you've got great fine art museums like the Kimball in Fort Worth and then lots of great live music in Texas. So we'd probably find something live music oriented to go. Austin's got a great scene, but DFW also has a great music, live music scene. Perfect. All right. And then I got to get some Texas barbecue while I'm there. Well, well. for sure. You bet. (laughs) Good deal. 
Well, I know you mentioned a classical Christian education. And so something, one of the things I love to ask classical Christian people that we've had on the podcast is for them to kind of give like that elevator pitch of what, what exactly classical Christian is. And you have some people that they have long, they're super passionate about it. So they talk about it for a long time. Like, Hey, give me that quick one, that quick of this is what it is. If somebody's interested in it. So, uh, you know, love to pass that one off to you. What is classical Christian school there? Classical Christian education is best practices from the last 3,500 years, as opposed to progressive education, which is science driven best practices from about the last 120 years. So the best content and delivery methodology for education is what classical Christian education is all about. And in classical Christian education, that involves two strands. One that's about 3,500 years old because it begins in Sinai with God's people during the Exodus when the Pentateuch was being written. And that's one of the primary texts for classical Christian education. And then that gets married up with the Greek and Roman tradition of education which really begins about 3,500 years ago, and I'm sorry, 2,500 years ago, 500 BC. And and so you've got the Greek philosophers, and then in the church era, God did that with spreading the New Testament through the language of Greek. And so classical Christian education is marrying up those two strands, God's people and the rabbinical system of the Jews in the Old Testament, along with the history of the Greek and Roman educational systems married up incarnationally in the person of Jesus, right? And in the gospel and the birth of the church. And so that is the rootedness for classical Christian education. Very good. That's why it's so biblically centered. Okay. So now I got a flip question for you because I do believe Uh that there are classical schools that aren't Christian schools. And if that's the case, what is their if it's rooted kind of in the same thing, but it's not Christian, how do do you know how those function specifically? Yeah, so what they're doing is they're predominating on the Greek and Roman strand. And there's no way they can escape the influence of the biblical tradition, even though they're not labeling themselves as, and I'm not saying that they are Christian schools, but they have to suppress that portion because true classical Christian education only married up the tradition of God's people with the educational traditions of the Romans and the Greeks. They basically are really focusing on, and some of the best practices are common between the two. So great study of the great books and going back to original authors and a lot of times classical languages. Most of the time that's Latin, sometimes it's Greek. So what happens with these long definitions is people start putting the components in that make up classical Christian education. And when I'm doing an elevator speech, I just want to get down to the core. And it's the very best content and methodology for education over 3,500 years. That's what it is. Okay. Thank you, Keith. Appreciate it. It's something I'm continuing to learn more and more about. So I have to keep asking when I meet people that are doing it. Like, all right, sell me on it. Tell me a little bit more about it. So it's perfect. So I know... Before we started recording, we talked about some of the things you do is like interim. You'll come in and you'll help a school as their interim head of school while they're looking for another one. Before we kind of jump into our main like questions for the podcast, I'd love for you to just kind of describe what all that entails. So those that are listening, maybe they're interested in doing an interim type of position or just 
what they can learn from you. So what exactly is that and how do you function in that role for schools? So it's a great transitional methodology for schools and it depends what the circumstances are, are at a individual school, whether or not it's their best approach. But it oftentimes can be very helpful for a school to use an interim head. So when I've done that work, I was at the same school as head of school for 15 years when I left there. That next head of school had a daunting task just because I had been there so long. Not because I'm not tooting my own horn in that. It's just people are used to who's in charge in a particular school. And so if that person has been, especially when they're beloved, respected, and they've been there a long time, that transition can be tough. The best scenario is where you had a really great succession plan and you've got somebody respected and qualified internally that's just moving into that position. But many schools find themselves, for various reasons, that's not their circumstance. And so they're looking for outside candidates for that head of school. And if you're in a situation that you need transition, oftentimes an interim head can be helpful. And so I've done that a few times in my career since I left the school I was at for 20 years. I've served as an interim at two other schools and I continue to look at that work as part of what I do for consulting, the educational services that I do through the nonprofit that I've formed. And so it's just a really useful tool. So I mentioned the transition from a long established head. That's a really good opportunity to consider an interim head. But you also can have circumstances where something has to be remedied. There's been conflict, reconciliation needs to occur. So sometimes you can find a head of school that can do that ministry of reconciliation. They're a peacemaker and they bring a third party sort of perspective to that role where someone within the school really, even if they could be impartial and be a third party, they're not normally given credit for that because they're homegrown, they're a homegrown entity, right? So having someone come in from the outside, if there's been conflict that needs to be reconciled, if there are things that should have been, accountability that should have been put in place that has been neglected, that person can both act as a peacemaker or as a solution catalyst that this is going to happen and I'm going to address the elephant in the room and we're going to speak truth to everybody, right? I'm going to speak truth to the board. I'm going to speak truth to the administration that's there and hopefully do that in a loving and gracious manner so that reconciliation ultimately i think an interim head their responsibility is to try to care for the long-term health of the school that's bringing them in and so where that aligns with my heartbeat is just what's at the core of what i care about is i want distinctively christian education to be made available to as many people as possible so just like it's easier to retain students than to find new students. I feel like it's easier for our movement to retain and sustain Christian schools rather than, even though I'm involved in trying to start new Christian schools, one of the major things I'm a part of, it is easier to retain and sustain an existing school than it is to create new schools. Is it hard for you to go into a school and 
and kind of help it get its feet back under itself and then leave. Like, you're like, oh man, it's kind of become like my family, my baby in a way. Like, how does that work? Well, it is true. And God is so gracious. You meet such tremendous people. It's just wonderful to meet God's people wherever. I mean, you can sort of think about that on mission trips too. You go on a mission trip to some other part, some other corner of the world, and you meet these great people. And there's this immediate familial connection just because of the God that we serve and the faith that we share, right? We're part of God's family. And so it's wonderful to experience that in these different settings, even when there's been problems and dysfunction. And so I'm always thankful for that. And then, yes, your heart gets knit to those places. But I think part of that, too, is knowing what your role is. If I really love Christian education, part of it is that I can take on myself in that role, that which you don't want to be put on the new long-term head of school. Right. If someone has to play the bad guy, it's better that it be the interim person and they really pave the way for the next long-term person. Right. And so now that's not always the case, but if that is the case, then it does make the parting a little easier if you've had to sort of take the blame or be the catalyst for change in a setting that was tough. It's harder to leave if you were the, the real factor of reconciliation in a community. Is there typically from what you've seen when you come into a school or any interim comes in, is that typically in everybody's eyes, the parents, the other school teachers, they see this as a temporary thing. And is there a time on it? Like, hey, this guy, Keith, whatever, another guy, he's only coming in for six months to do this or a year to do this. And then how does that relationship work with like parents going, well, I'm not going to get really attached to this guy because he's really not going to be the main guy going forward. I mean, that relationship, I know there's like a lot of questions in one, but how does that kind of look? Well, there's certainly a spectrum. Not everybody's the same. Just like in any school setting, not all the parents are going to have the same response to any given decision or point of action, right? There's a whole, you know, spectrum of responses. That's true in these settings. And that's true whether you're interim or long-term. So when I've had successful interim heads, there's certainly people that are wanting me to stay long-term. And I think it's important to be clear about what your calling is in a situation. You don't want to create false expectations, whatever that might be. And so I think Clarity of communication is really important. Being really honest with everybody involved is really significant. There are instances you can find people who served as an interim head and they did decide to long-term go to that school and become part of that community, move their family to that community. And so I think being clear about that. So in that kind of case, an interim head's more like a, a really long job interview, right? You get to see that person functioning before you're hiring them indefinitely in that role. But I don't think that's the primary intention of an interim head. I think that puts potential heads of school in too much limbo. In most cases, people's family circumstances can be very different. So in my case, you know, my kids have been at the same classical Christian school since they were in three-year-old pre-K. And I've got a junior in high school and an eighth grader. So I'm not looking to relocate my family. I really am serving as an interim head of school when I've done those roles. And I want to help that school to the best extent that I can. 
and uh, I'm not looking to move my whole family there. Yeah. Is that something you want to do in around kind of ongoing till retirement? I mean, what is kind of your plan that you want to do? Yeah, so I do the consulting interim heads part of that. That's sort of like the A tier of fully involved consulting, right? And I do all of that through the organization that I founded, Curie Christian Education Services. But I'm also trying to found new schools through that organization. And so I would imagine, again, the mission of that organization is to expand access to distinctively Christian education. That's at the core of what that, that nonprofit is about. So if I can do that through being an interim head of school or consulting with a board or a set of faculty, then I will do that. If I can found an entire school campus or system of schools, we're trying to work on a creating a system of schools in the DFW area, then that's great too. And so I would imagine even as we get these schools up and running, there may be stints where I need to act as the interim head for a particular campus that's in the system of schools I'm helping to create. But my calling now, I believe, is to help that whole movement and that system. That's why I'm not looking for long-term heads of school positions as I once did. That, that's what I sense God called me to move to working on. Very good. Well, I know you've been in education for a while, so I think I'd love to ask you some questions about what you've seen. So like you've you know, helped schools, your kids have been in this school for a while, you were at that school for a while. What are some of the challenges that you've seen firsthand that schools are typically just challenged with specifically? And then not just here's their challenges, but how have you seen other ones combating these challenges that they're up against? Sure. Well, we'll start with the philosophical and then I'll cover practical. On a philosophical front, I just I think the poison of relativism has really come fully to roost in our culture. And when people talk about truth as in the guise of like a personal pronoun, my truth is I just believe so destructive and almost most inherently destructive to education. I mean, the whole system of understanding how learning occurs and whatever epistemological front you're coming from, if there is not objective truth that can be learned, it just knocks education entirely off kilter. And to be candid, I believe that that is what we are experiencing in most forms of education around the world today and certainly in the Western world where relativism has just become this strident stream of ideology that has to be fought against. And so you see it in our public schools, you see it in you know all kinds of different secular schools, but to pretend it's not present in our Christian schools is to be naive. I mean, our kids are immersed in this culture that is telling them that their preferences are king no matter what is happening and they actually decide what truth is for themselves and that is just it's counter to everything that we're wrestling with what's fascinating to me is that's not just counter to a christian worldview but it's counter to a modernist point of view not postmodern it is postmodern but the modernist view that wants to take actual scientific experimental experimental fact, established fact, right, and apply it, it runs completely counter to that. When you can say what is not is, 
based on just your preference, it is counter to all of those sort of philosophies and ideologies. So how a school contends with that particular philosophical strand, I would call the hyper-democratization of culture, where self-choice is more valuable and more significant than any other consideration. And so how schools wrestle with that, that's part of the reason I love a classical approach to education because it gives you such a rootedness that's many more centuries old than the modernist viewpoint that I'm talking about. And so that's true on the progressive education side. And so I think it gives you more opportunity to say, no, lots of people have thought and believed lots of things over the centuries and there is objective reality that exists and part of our submission to God, right, and living vibrantly in the life that we're given is understanding those boundaries mm. and living a flourishing life cannot have no boundaries, right? The, the boundaries themselves help us to move into the life that is best for us. And you made a really good point, Keith. You're talking about like classical Christian for all these things that are going on in our culture right now to go, well, actually, let's go back and see what they were doing with this or what they, and obviously there's certain things that aren't super clear in the Bible when it comes to certain things going, hey, they didn't specifically talk about this specific thing that our culture is up against right now, but there's a lot of foundational things that we can go back to and go, oh, that's not what they did or that's not what the Bible says. So using that as your, your base and obviously in public school system, that's not something that they can go back to, of course, and do. So I totally agree with you on that. I love that. Then on the, the practical front, everybody talks about funding and having funding for education is really significant. And again, I think people pretending that funding is not an issue, it leaves, leads to naive, failed attempts at trying to find solutions. And so being honest about those issues and thinking outside the box, I think is really significant. Part of what Kyrie works on is judicial support for school choice. And I'm a huge believer in that because ultimately <clears throat> the lion's share of educational funding comes through governmental taxing and revenue, right? And so I, I do believe that our constitutional rights are being violated by the way that education is funded in the United States. Religious liberty is ensconced in the Constitution and I believe that that should extend to education. I believe every parent in the country should be able to choose the education they want for their children and government funds should pay for that. If it's going to pay for some of the students, it should pay for all of the students and religious liberty is more inherently tied to education than almost any other topic, certainly any other topic that is primarily funded by the government. And so I just believe it's an absolute violation of our constitutional rights that the federal and state monies that are collected for education in most cases are not available for people of faith. And that would be true of all faiths, but in my case, I want those funds to be available for Christian parents to choose a distinctively Christian education for their children. So we can continue to fight that, but then I think schools have to be wise about other funding options. And I do believe that there is financially significant 
power that resides in Christian community. And most of the time, schools do not leverage that for their own good and for the good of the school that they, they're providing to the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean by that is I think there is an economic draw for business owners to be connected to a Christian school. It gives them an inherent marketplace. And I believe there are ways in campus development that you can leverage that economic power of a Christian community and a Christian school to benefit that school. And most of the time we don't do that. So, you know, if you think about Christian schools, you've got tuition and you've got donors, but there's a whole other segment of money that's out there in investors that most of the time Christian schools take no advantage of. And so part of what I'm working on is how do you create new systems for school campuses and school systems where those Christian schools are undergirded by financial engines that extend beyond just tuition and donations. So some organizations call that auxiliary income. So you, I mean, you see it a little bit when the Christian school rents out their facilities for other use, but I think I think we can go a lot further than that in establishing sort of streams of revenue that can support Christian schools and support tuition assistance programs so that the accessibility of Christian education is much more widely available. I love that. And now you mentioned school choice. Is there any state that you really respect their I guess, political stance on that and how they've like set up schools for success. I'm pretty sure Florida, I think Arizona, I don't know how many states are school choice. Yeah, so you got some of the corporate tax credits that have been really significant, helpful in Florida. I was interim head of school in Georgia and I liked how some of their programs work in Arizona and Wisconsin. There's a number of schools that are states that have done more on school choice than other states. But I would be clear about this. I don't believe that there is any state in the U.S. or territory that has ever managed their educational funding in a manner that's fully constitutional. I believe all 50 states violate the U.S. Constitution in the way that they fund education. For me, without question. And it's not close to being constitutional. So until funding for private religious-based schools is equal to the funding of any other public entity school, I believe until that happens, we are violating the U.S. Constitution and we're violating the First Amendment and religious liberties that are ensconced in that document. Mm, Man, that could be a whole other podcast episode right there. (laughs) What are some of the things you've seen schools doing really good at? Like that you're like, man, that this school, and you can say a specific school if you want to, but just like, hey, I've seen some schools doing this and doing it really, really well. Well, I love what's happening oftentimes in classical Christian schools. You see it in some other schools as well, where an inherent portion of the education is discourse interaction between teachers and students. I'm not a believer in student-led learning, right? And we have educators, professional educators for a reason, but I also think that the never-ending talking head of lecture, lecture, lecture is really antithetical to great education. So putting students in a position where they're really wrestling and deliberating about ideas, they're practicing their 
their discourse skills and their rhetorical skills? Can they articulate what they understand, what they believe? Can they be persuasive? If we want to, when I say we, if Christendom wants to have an impact on the world that we live in, we have got to be able to communicate. We must be spirit-led, and that needs to be married up with really cultivated skill sets. And so in our schools, when we create those points of dialogue, and that is not a quick form of education, by the way. It takes time and effort and purpose. And by the way, that's not something that only happens at the, the high school level. Right? I believe real discussions, Socratic discussions, need to occur in our preschool and grammar school level classes on a very regular basis. I used to tell teachers all the time, when in doubt, ask a significant question and just talk about it. When in doubt, if you've got five minutes left at the end of the class and you got your lesson done for the day, ask a significant question. It's amazing what second graders might answer if you ask them, hey, what is hope? Mm. What does it look like? When have you been hopeful in your life? What did that look like? I mean, you can get profound answers from even the youngest of students to those kinds of questions. And they'll be very brutally honest too, which is, oh, and I love it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you can get confession time too, like family confession time out of young kids. I'm not trying to do that, but uh, yeah, you can, you can affect that kind of response as well. <laughs> what else? I mean, anything else that you you've noticed schools doing really, really well? Oh yeah. So it's interesting. You know, I, I've been in classical Christian education, which sometimes classical Christian schools have seen are seen as being very wary of technology. Actually, I'm on the other end of that. I'm excited about what technology might do for access to distinctively Christian education. Certainly, the internet and technology is used for lots of really destructive purposes, but it is also allowing access to the gospel around the world at a level that we've never seen really in history before now. And I believe that's going to be true for education as well. I think we've got to be very thoughtful about how that is utilized, but it's exciting to me, a Christian family that lives in some really remote rural part of the world could potentially provide a distinctively Christian, and in my case, classical education for their kids when there's nobody around them that has that same desire or affinity. There may be nobody around them. They may be so rural that there's just nobody around them. Or they don't really, they're not part of a community where that sort of possibility exists. And with technology, those things do exist now. So I'm excited about what that could do for access to distinctively Christian education going forward. And I think some schools are really doing that well. I like some of the hybrid approaches that I've seen. Uh, I'll mention a specific school, the Ambrose School in Boise, Idaho. They were the first one that I knew of, of classical Christian schools that had their their five-day-a-week day school, and then they acquired a, I think it was a church across the street where they had their university scheduled, their collaborative <clears throat> model. They worked with a number of homeschool families and created a what we think of as more of a university-scheduled program there and families 
could move their kids back and forth between the two. I think some families even now have some kids in one and some kids in the other, and they're able to tailor that for what's best for not just for their family, but for individual children. So I think that was very encouraging to me to see that sort of solutions that are really tailored for what's best for particular particular families, particular kids. I'm really hopeful that we're going to see more of that going forward. I can tell you, the schools I'm founding, I would really like one of the campuses, for instance, to have a palsy school that's connected to it and a classical Christian cerebral palsy school that really focuses on the incarnational value and so physical therapy and such would be a major part of that. There are Christian schools out there that are specific like Down syndrome schools. There's one in North Texas that I learned of and so I think those kinds of things are really encouraging for me going forward that I'd like to see a revitalization of that whole sort of culture shaping foundation that's part of you know, historic Christian education. Because I do think we've got to get back to a place where we're taking hold of the pillars that undergird culture. Man, and I totally agree with you on the technology side that you mentioned. Like, I think it's a double-edged sword because I think a lot of schools, yeah, mm-hmm. if you embrace it too much, I do see there's, a, you know, there's cons to that. But man, like to, to fully turn your back on it, I guess, that's, I'm definitely not on that side. So I do think, yeah, it's that double-edged sort of like, all right, can we incorporate it also to help us grow as a school but also just to it's not going anywhere so can we use it to teach and educate that next generation about the good of it not the bad of it and i and that's toe on a line i guess and obviously i've met some schools that like you've mentioned the uh, classical christian that are very much like hey we don't want any really don't want it and then others that, like you just said they're kind of like oh it is what it is we're going to try and toe mm-hmm. that line so i totally I, I totally agree with you on that Yeah, I think a lot about missionaries in particular who are, you know, they're doing what God's called them to do and they're in places where their children don't have, you know, schools available that align with what they believe, what they want for their children. And I thank God for like missionary boarding schools that are out there that provide services that are critically important so the gospel can go forward and all that. but I think it's great to give those missionary families more options of what they could do. Could they have their kids with them, continue to parent them day by day, and give them the kind of education that they feel called by Scripture and the Holy Spirit to provide to their children. So if we can create tools and resources, I think that is a really blessed thing. As we wrap up the episode, Keith, I always like to end with my question for everybody. Is if you could share a piece of advice or suggestions to any of the school leaders that are listening, what would that be? I would really recommend to be creative and think outside the box about how you fund your educational enterprise. Christian schools are both ministries and businesses, and so I think there are lots of opportunities that most schools don't even think of that can help them fund education for more families and to better pay their teachers so that great educators can stay within Christian education. Love it. Well, Keith, man, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast today. I know it's been months in the planning of us like, oh, we need to get a recording done. So finally we 
connected in person in October. It was like, we got to get this done <laughs> and do it. So thank you for taking time. I love just all the years. Just thank you for pouring into all those students over the course of the last 20, 30 years that you've been doing education. And I know you're going to be doing it for even longer. So thank you for that and the lasting impact that you've made in these students and families' lives. And just wishing you nothing but the best as you continue to do what you're doing, man. Thank you. Appreciate you, Mitchell. Thanks, man. Well, again, another huge shout out and a thank you to Keith for taking time and being on the podcast today. He really is doing some awesome things and I'm wishing him nothing but the best as he continues to do that. And if you're a school that's listening to this and you need help growing your enrollment or finding ways to connect better with your families that are a part of your school, we'd love to hear from you. You can check us out online, schoolsuccessmakers.com. That's schoolsuccessmakers.com. Or if you're more of a Facebook user, please join our private Facebook group, of course, on Facebook called School Success Makers. That's School Success Makers on Facebook. I'm personally in there and I'd love to personally see you in there as well. We're launching a new service that we've been piloting with two schools, one in California and one in Florida. And we are super stoked to launch it officially into 2023. And we'd love your school to be a part of it. It is called School Influencers. It's where I coach a team of your students to run your school's social media so you guys don't have to do it all by yourself anymore. You have a great team of marketers in your school and they are your students. But I know that it might be a little overwhelming to say, hey, I'm gonna have these students help us with social media. Well, that's what I come in and I help do. I help them learn how to do marketing and learn how to do social media by taking photos, videos, writing the content. And I come beside your school and I help them do that. We'd love you guys to sign up as a school and to join school influencers and be a part of what we're doing. I love students so much and I love pouring into them. So I love your school to be a part of it. So you can reach out to us as well on our website and say that you want to sign up for our school influencer program and we would love to have you. So we will be here next week with another awesome guest as usual on the School Success Podcast. We'll see you then.